It is common to hear people give the advice, don't ever trust in people. They will always let you down. Maybe you've had that advice given to you. Maybe you've even given that advice to people. And while it is true that we cannot put our ultimate hope or trust in people, you may be surprised to see in this message that Scripture does encourage us. It actually does encourage us to follow the examples of those who are exemplary. Let's turn together to Philippians chapter 4 as we continue looking through this very rich chapter of God's Word. Our text for this message is going to involve only one verse, though we will be jumping around to quite a few passages. Notice verse 9, what Paul says here in the middle of this fourth chapter of the book known as Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. It is obvious what Paul is saying just by reading the verse. It's not complicated or difficult to understand, although it is quite an amazing claim when you stop to think about it. Did did you catch the extent of the promise Paul made in this verse? He says, the things which you learned, received, and heard, and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. That's an all-encompassing statement. Paul felt comfortable, dare I say confident, encouraging others to follow him. He knew that was God's plan for him as well as for the other apostles. You see, the apostles played such a key role in the life of the early church. Acts 2.42 says of the early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So that verse tells us that the early church studied the apostles' doctrine. Obviously, that doesn't mean they made it up. It means they were the recipients of the the divine revelation from God, and they were the channels that passed it along. In fact, let me give you an intriguing thought. Maybe you never thought about it this way. The apostles studied the Old Testament. In other words, when they went to Bible study, like we go to Bible studies, they studied the Old Testament, but they wrote the New Testament by divine revelation and inspiration. Ephesians 2.20 refers to the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church and the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. The apostles were the foundation because of what they taught. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the apostles were the foundation because of what they taught, but they were also the foundation because of how they lived. In Ephesians 3, 5, they were referred to as God's holy apostles. That refers to the fact that they were set aside. You probably know the word holy means distinct, separate, set aside, separate. So they were set aside for God's special use, but it also refers to how they lived. They lived holy lives, and therefore they were an example 
to the people with whom they worked or for whom they served. The apostle Peter was the one who said, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Paul lived that way before God and man. And one of the reasons he lived a holy life was to be an example others could follow, as he says here in verse 9. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he said, And you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. We live that way for your sake. Paul recognized the importance of human examples. Now maybe you're wondering, well, Brian, why, why are you stressing this point or pushing the point so much? Well, the answer is because the subject comes up all the time in the New Testament. As I said earlier, it may surprise you how often it occurs. In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul held up Timothy and Epaphroditus as models or examples. In chapter 3, verse 17, and here in chapter 4, verse 9, he holds himself up as an example to be followed. This concept really is all over the place in Scripture. Back up one chapter to chapter 3, verse 17 where Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. How can Paul say that? It almost sounds egotistical. Is is he claiming perfection? Absolutely not. Twice in verses 12 through 16, he made it clear that he had not arrived. In verse 12, He says, not that I have already attained. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended or laid hold of it. I'm not there. He had not arrived at perfection, but he was diligently pursuing the right direction. That's why he could say, follow me. He was diligently pursuing the goal of Christ-likeness, and because he was, he was an example. Now, we understand in chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 9, that he wasn't asking them to copy every detail of his life because he still sinned. And on occasions when he sinned, he would not say, oh, do what I did there or, or copy that. But he was asking them to copy his drive and his passion and his pursuit of Christ-likeness. And because he knew with a clear conscience he was pursuing that goal, he did not hesitate to encourage others to follow his example. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4.16. He encouraged the Corinthian believers to follow his example, follow his pattern. He did so again in 1 Corinthians 11.1 when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. That last phrase is the key to being able to say what Paul said. It is only as we follow Christ in life that we are able to, we are able to say, follow me. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Over to the right a little bit to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice what Paul says about the Thessalonian believers in verse 6. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Again, that sounds a little strange to us that Paul would say, You became followers of us. 
But it's clear that here Paul commends the believers for becoming followers of Silas and Timothy and himself. He saw that as a good sign. He saw that as a healthy thing. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, he came back to this same thought. Just skip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. But notice what he says, and notice what he says beginning in verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to anyone, and because we do not have, a, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. That passage is loaded with references and inferences about the importance of patterning our lives after good, solid models. And because that is so important, the Scripture demands that men who occupy the role of spiritual leadership be men who are examples and worthy of being followed. Let me show you what I mean. Keep going to the right to 1 Peter chapter 5. After Hebrews and James, 1 Peter (coughs) chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, here we go, but being examples to the flock. Peter reminds the elders that they are to be examples to the flock. The primary quality of spiritual leadership is not talent. Listen, the primary quality of spiritual leadership is not skill. The primary quality of spiritual leadership is not giftedness. It is exemplary character. That is why in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul spells out a grocery list of spiritual qualifications for elders and deacons. And when Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus as pastors, as shepherds, he reminded them that they were to be examples to the flock. Go back to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and look at what Paul says there. 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's obvious as you read 1 Timothy and even 2 Timothy that Timothy had a tendency to be maybe a little withdrawn, intimidated, uh, reserved, So in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, Paul says, Let no one look down on your youth, Timothy. Let no one despise your youthfulness. Well, how can I do that, Paul? I mean, if they look down on me because I'm young, how can I change that? Well, here you go. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Paul knew that the way young Timothy could earn the most respect among the people he was shepherding would be to make sure that he was exemplary. And Paul says basically the same thing to Titus. Go past 2 Timothy to Titus. Titus was also a shepherd, an elder. He was in Crete. 
Timothy was in Ephesus. Titus was in Crete. And notice in chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verse 6, likewise exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things. Now notice this. In all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Specifically, Paul says, Titus, you should be an example in three ways, three areas. In your doctrine, in your speech, and in your life. In your doctrine, in your speech, in your life. So Paul says here, Titus, don't forget that a major part of your ministry is not only teaching and exhorting, it's also setting the pace by your example. There's no substitute for models and examples. Paul recognized that. Better yet, the Spirit of God recognizes that. And that is why the New Testament is filled with this concept. And that is why in Philippians 3, Paul urged the Philippians to follow him. Now go back to Philippians 3 again before we consider our text in chapter 4, verse 9. They're both statements, chapter 3 and chapter 4, are so closely related. Go back to chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, Philippians three seventeen, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. The phrase that is translated join in following, depending on your translation, that's the way mine's worded here in verse 17, is from the Greek word mimetai, and you probably immediately recognize that we get our English word mimic from that word, mimetai. Paul was telling the Philippians to mimic his example. What example? The example he just described in verses 12 through 14 of pursuing Christ passionately. When you stop to think about it, the Holy Spirit has filled the New Testament with Paul's life and mind and heart as a pattern for us. Think about this. Paul wrote at least 13 of the books of the New Testament. He is the central character in Acts chapter 9 where Dr. Luke records his conversion. And then the central character in Acts 13 through 28. The entire second half of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit has filled the New Testament with this man because he is such an example. Sure, the Lord Jesus is our ultimate example. Don't ever forget that. But in some ways, it's hard to relate him because he's always been perfect. Now, I'm not minimizing him as our example. You know how often I've, I've, I've addressed that. But my point is we can relate to Paul in a different way because he, too, had a sinful past just like we had a sinful past. And he always struggled with a sinful disposition, just like you and I struggle with a sinful disposition. So in a a unique way or a different way, Paul provides for us a model to follow and an example to emulate. But here's the interesting thing. Not only him. Verse 17 continues. He says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk the same way. Note those who so walk. The phrase note those or observe those, again, depending on your translation, comes from the Greek word or from a Greek word from which we get our English word scope. 
So here, Paul broadens the field. He not only encouraged others to follow his example, he even encouraged them to learn from all good examples. He is saying this, when you see good examples, learn from them and look through a telescope at their lives. The word pattern here at the end of this verse is the Greek word tupon, from which we get our English word type. A type is a pattern. Godly examples are types for us to trace our lives on. It's important to note what Paul is saying here because some people would say, well, it's okay to follow the examples of the holy apostles of the past, but we shouldn't follow contemporary examples. Like the advice I mentioned that is often set forth, well, don't ever follow people. They will always disappoint you. But this verse doesn't limit the principle just to the apostles. Here Paul broadens the circle to include others who walk along the path of maturity with the same passion Paul described in verses 12 through 14. Paul is saying, listen, we should model them and learn from them as well. After all, think about it. The Lord has put us in a family. He's put us in a body. As iron sharpens iron, we should learn from one another. We should be able to look at each other's lives and grow from our observation of each other's lives. Hebrews 13 says the same thing. Go back to the right again to Hebrews chapter 13. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said, verse 7 of Hebrews 13. He says, Remember those who lead you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. This is basically what Paul is saying in both Philippians 3, verse 17, and in our text in Philippians chapter 4. Now let's go back there to our text in Philippians chapter 4 and develop it just a little more from that verse. The point is this, and I hope it's clear, it is good, it is helpful to have flesh and blood, contemporary human examples to follow. Sure, we need to look back at the Lord Jesus, most of all. And sure, we need to look at Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and, and uh, the, 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 the uh, lady Mary who worshiped the Lord in such a sacrificial way. We have examples of men and women back in Scripture who provide for us an example. But it's also good to have contemporary, living, human examples that we can learn from and can encourage us. It is helpful to be able to see others who are on the path and are pursuing the goal of Christ's likeness. Paul was undoubtedly such a man. So here in chapter 4, verse 9, he once again encouraged the Philippians to follow him or follow his example. Notice how he says it. He says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Let me center in on that word do for just a moment. Now, some of your versions, I think, have the word practice. The things which you learned, received, and heard and saw in me, these practice. And the reason it's translated that way is because that's basically the meaning, meaning of this particular Greek term. It's a, it refers to ongoing action. So it's rightly translated practice, or you could just leave it as do this, 
or continue to do this. It refers to a pattern of life. It refers to lifestyle. And Paul is basically reminding us here that it really doesn't do any good to learn a lot of facts and to have good, solid examples around us if we don't personally do anything ourselves. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 13, 17 after he'd washed the disciples' feet and taught them about humility and servanthood? He said this, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. That's a fascinating statement. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. He didn't say, happy are you if you know them. He said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Let's develop that thought a little more. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. And notice how Jesus reinforces this thought in his conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine. Now that's such an important statement, because we tend to apply this to people out there. I mean, you know, unbelievers, people that don't go to church, they don't hear the word of God. That's not who Jesus has in mind here. He says, everyone who hears these sayings of mine. So he's talking about people who hear the word of God. They hear what Jesus taught. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. You see, the only difference between these two people that Jesus has in mind is that one did something about what he heard, the other did not. The other heard. The other heard the word of God. Listen to it. They both heard the same thing. But only one did something about it. Skip over a few pages to chapter 25 of Matthew. Matthew 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money after a long time. The Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he, he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were, fa- you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, 
There you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Do you see the principle in this parable told by our Lord? The principle is this. If you know the truth, you ought to act on it. This guy who was condemned was condemned by his own mouth. He said, Lord, I know, I know this is how you work. I know, I understand all that. I know it. And he didn't do anything about it. And he condemned himself by his own words. In Luke 6.46, Jesus said, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Don't just say, do. Don't just call me Lord, Lord, but do what I ask you to do. The writer of Hebrews had to basically scold the believers to whom he wrote because of this very issue. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Go back again to the right over near the end of the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 5. Look at what he says in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. That's really an interesting phrase. Because what it shows us that the, is that the Lord does have a divine timetable for us. He does have expectations. You know, if you've been a Christian for a while, the, the, the assumption, the expectation is that you, you have some things down at least. You've got some things, you know, some understanding and you're, you're living out the truth. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but yet you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Notice that word, you've come to need. You've come to need. You've, you've you know, the, the old Baptist phrase, you've backslidden. You're a backslider. You've, you've come to need this. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are full age. Now, we might assume that he's talking about those who have deep understanding. In other words, solid food is for those who are really sharp mentally. You know, they really have it down. They, they understand doctrine and theology. But that's not what he says. Notice what he says. That is, those who by reason of use, those who by reason of practice have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The writer of Hebrews says the reason why you have, you have gone backwards is because you, you haven't done anything about what you knew. You haven't lived it. You haven't practiced it. Act on what you know. That's what he's saying. You, you can't put truth on ice. But sadly, that's what so many Christians try to do. They hear what the Word of God has to say about marriage, conflict resolution, honesty, sin, immorality, confession, forgiveness, love, kindness. You, you name it. Just put any topic in there you want. They hear what the Word of God has to say, but they refuse to make any changes in practice to conform to the truth at all. They just sit and listen and hear it and do absolutely nothing. 
J. Dwight Pentecost said this, quote, maturity in the Christian life is not measured by what a man knows, but by what he does. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Look at the next book, James. Just a few pages to the right, James chapter 1. Verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. What an illustration. You know what James is saying there? He says, if you are content just to hear the word, but you don't do anything about it, you're like someone who gets up, looks in the mirror, and his or her hair is everywhere. There are lines on the face from your pillow, sleepy matter in your eyes, drool running down your chin, and you say, I'm ready for the day, and you walk out the door. You know, I don't see, I'm scanning, but I don't see any of you here who did that. You would not do that. You would not look in the mirror with that kind of mess and say, I'm going to go out in public. But James says we do that spiritually all the time. We are confronted with the mirror of God's word and it says, you know, you need to address that attitude. You need to address that habit. You need to address that perspective. You need to address that reaction. You need to address that. And we close the Bible and just go on with life. And we completely ignore It's amazing how easy it is to deceive ourselves spiritually by doing exactly what James describes here. When we hear the word of God but refuse to do anything about what we hear, we are practicing, James says, the ultimate self-deception. Self-deception. And let me just be very personal for us as a church family. It's really easy for us to practice this kind of self-deception. The reason I say that is because we try, by God's grace, to be a church that focuses on the Word. Whether it's corporately, Sunday school classes, counseling, uh, uh, community groups, uh, just wherever we try, discipleship, we try to make the Word central. And as a result, it'd be very easy for us to say, well, we're all about the Word. Yes, but do we do it? Do we make the changes that are necessary when confronted by the Word. James says you're deceiving yourself if you're content just to hear the Word. If you're content to come in here to church, go to a Sunday school class, go to a community group, and you hear the Word, you hear the, group, the, the Word, and you are content to leave it there. That is self-deception. Pentecost writes again, quote, Truth is communicated communicated to a person through the channel of his mind, and truth is grasped by the mind, but unless that which is received by the mind is loved with the heart and translated into action by the will, the truth has not done its proper work. Truth is designed to possess the total person. Truth is not designed simply to teach the mind. Truth is communicated so the heart might respond in love for the truth and the will might respond in obedience to the truth. That's what James is saying here. And look at what he says in chapter 4, just a couple pages over, chapter 4, verse 17. He says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Again, he is stressing the point, knowing is not enough. We have to do something about it. 
And that's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Go back there to that text in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says the same thing here in Philippians 4, that the Christian life not only involves proper thinking, as verse 8 sets forth, it also involves proper doing. In fact, notice verse 9 again. Paul says, these things are the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, these practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Please notice that this promise isn't made to the believer who only fills his mind with the truth. It's a promise to the believer who translates into action the truth his or her mind has received. That's the Christian who has promised the special presence of the God of peace. Back in verse 7, Paul referred to the peace of God. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So in verse 7, he refers to the peace of God. But in verse 9, he refers to the God of peace. What a beautiful title for God, the God of peace. And remember, to the Hebrew way of thinking, peace meant more than just absence of turmoil. It meant all that is good. That's why still to this day, Jewish people, when they greet one another, they say shalom. Then they have a conversation. When they depart, they say shalom. It's this idea of of wishing all that is good, wanting God's best. God is the God of peace. Or you could say it this way, he is the God of all that is good. Let's look at just a few other passages as an encouragement about this aspect of the greatness of God. Let me show you. This really, this really gripped me. I don't know that I'd ever seen this from this angle before. So let me show you a few of these passages. Go back to Romans 15. Romans 15 and look at just three or four of these passages that use the same phrase or a very similar phrase. Romans 15 verse 33 Notice what Paul says here, Romans 15, verse 33. He says, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Not the peace of God. Now that's true too, but the God of peace. Just a few verses later in chapter 16, he refers to God in the same way. Look at chapter 16, verse 19. He says, for your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Those are tremendous words of encouragement. Look at 1 Corinthians, the next letter, chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Remember, Paul wrote these words to the Corinthians because their public meetings were a disaster. Evidently, some were standing up and cursing Jesus without even realizing it. That's chapter 12. Some were standing up and saying, in a language they did not know, Jesus, go to hell. Jesus, be damned. They didn't know what they were saying because they had been deceived by Satan about the true nature of the gift of languages. 
Some were standing up in the assembly and speaking in, in tongues or languages at the same time as others. No one was interpreting. So things were really a mess. And notice what Paul says then to them in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32. He says this, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. You may have noticed that the words the author, God is not the author of confusion, those words are italicized, which means they were supplied by the translators. Literally, this says, God is not of disorder, but of peace. In other words, God is the God of peace. Look at the next letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Paul says, finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Here Paul adds another of the great attributes of God, his love. Our God is a God of love and a God of peace. And the more we grow and the more we are sanctified, the more we can enjoy the benefits of his love and peace. That's why Paul prayed what he did In 1 Thessalonians 5, I'll just read it to you. 1 Thessalonians, as he was winding down that letter, chapter 5, verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16 Paul says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. That says it. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. Listen, if you've ever had experiences in life, and the longer you've lived life, the more of these experiences you've had, where you are in turmoil because of something. And it's not even necessarily a wrong kind of turmoil. It's not a bad thing. But there's just uh, agitation over some, like what Paul describes, his care for other believers and his concern for them. If you've lived life with the absence of peace, then you know how precious it is to have peace. To just have peace. And not be concerned, not have, to be, not have to be worried, even in a good sense of that term, about something. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. But let me emphasize again that the promise Paul makes in Philippians 4, 9 about the God of peace is a promise to the believer who translates into action the truth his mind has received. In Isaiah 32, there's a beautiful verse about the conditions in the coming kingdom of Messiah during which time righteousness will reign. And verse 17 of Isaiah 32 says, the work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds so good to me right now. Peace, quietness and assurance forever. Peace comes to those who not only know the truth, but practice the truth. Now let me address one more issue in closing. A lot of Christians today are looking for peace. They want peace. But sadly, I think they're looking in the wrong places and they're looking for peace from the wrong sources. 
They were running all over the place looking for answers from supposed experts, counselors, so they can have peace. And I believe what often happens is this. Because we can't understand completely how spiritual growth and spiritual warfare work, it is spiritual. It's it's another dimension. Because we can't, we so often resort to fleshly weapons as a substitute. And when we do that, without realizing it, we forfeit peace. Look at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 as we close the message. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, now he doesn't mean sinfully, he's just talking about, you know, we still live in these human bodies. We live in the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of the flesh. It's not something tangible. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Beloved, there's really no fleshly shortcut to spiritual growth. Spiritual growth, spiritual stability involves what we saw in the last message, Philippians 4.8, learning to think right. And now what we see in Philippians 4.9, learning to live right. It's that basic. It's that basic. Spiritual stability is all about having the right thoughts, the right attitude, the right actions. And the Lord says, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, when you have those things, you experience the benefits of the God of peace. So let's live that way to the glory of Christ. Please bow with me as we close. Father, these are precious, precious promises in your word about what you have supplied to us, what you have supplied for us to be able to live this impossible life known as the Christian life. It's impossible on a human level. Completely and utterly impossible. Which is why Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. We are reminded, we are reminded that it takes the strength of Christ. It takes the indwelling power of the Spirit. And thank you for those human examples around us that we can look to, others who are pursuing Christ and others who are passionate about walking with Christ. We we need those examples. We need that encouragement. May we never take those for granted, but may they spur us on as iron sharpens iron, to live the way you have called us to live as your people. And thank you that you are the God of peace. The God of peace who will grant to us eventually, someday, in eternity, the absence of all turmoil, the absence of all conflict, the absence of all worry, the absence of all concern, and there will simply be peace. What a treasure. Thank you we get get to experience a taste of that here and now in this life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.